Praise to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 105, verses 1 through 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. So let us express our gladness in the Lord and his saving mercies this morning by remaining standing and singing together hymn 286. God in heaven, we are grateful again for the hour of worship and, and the day of Sabbath rest. We, we uh, confess to you, O Lord, our great desire uh, to, to worship you. We confess to you our weariness uh, with the world, uh, perhaps now more than ever. Uh, this, this, this place, O God, this, this, not this earth, but this place of worship gathered uh, amongst the saints is the closest to home we will ever be. And Father, we need you to refresh us with your Sabbath rest and your Sabbath mercies. Uh, we, we praise you that the Sabbath is a gift for your church in which you, you, you promise to weary, uh, to refresh, I mean, weary pilgrims. We praise you that uh, there is true rest to be had here if we would just take a break from the world, if we would just uh, lay full hold of, of the gift of worship and of the day of quietness. Of course, it's a very busy day for us if we uh, take up the full measure of worship. That alone will all but exhaust us. Uh, but it is a good and a wholesome work. It is a reminder that we were created uh, not to build a kingdom here, but to, to seek that kingdom which is to come. And so we praise you, O God, that y- you have given us a sense of the greatest kingdom of all, the kingdom of heaven. And we pray that it is that heaven, that kingdom, uh, rather, which would remain paramount in our minds and in our hearts. And that we would ever be seeking the righteousness of that kingdom 
And even as you tell us, Lord Jesus, that as we show forth our good works in the world, which is to say the good works and the good deeds which are prescribed by you in that kingdom, a life of true righteousness, uh, then the, even the unbeliever, even the pharaohs of the world, as, uh, as you declare in Exodus, will praise you. They will declare your glory, uh, not because they want to, but because they cannot do otherwise. Lord, your greatness is undeniable, and there is no way to escape it. There is no way to deny it in the ultimate sense. Every man ultimately will bow the knee. And Father, all that we would seek to do this morning is to do so gladly, to do so before the time. We do not wish to be forced upon our knees on the last day as an act of great humiliation. We do not wish to be cast down, that is, but we wish to be cast up into heaven at your right side together with your son. Although we know that in the meantime, there are many hard, difficult and dark providences for the church to pass through. And uh, there, there is no telling uh, what might await us uh, as a congregation and as a nation as, and as individuals. Father, uh, to say that is just to be redundant, because who is to who is to say what will ever come tomorrow? Uh, and as you remind us in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, not to worry, because uh, quite frankly, so much of what we worry about never comes to pass anyways. Uh, but some of them do. But even then, we are able to go through this world as those who are cared for by our father who is in heaven. And besides, everything that happens is your goodwill anyways. And so, Father, as we as we come together this morning, we are not only rejoicing in you, but we are asking you to help us to do so. Help us to see more clearly and more fully your goodness to us and to the church. Help us to experience it as uh, we look forward to it, considering through the evening sermon that there there's both an outward and an inward element to your goodness. And we can't pretend as though the outward has no value. Uh, we want to be in the church. We want the church to be open. Uh, we want to have a friendly relation with the governing authorities. We don't want to be like Pharaoh and Moses. Moses begging, can we please worship God? Lord, the outward things matter and they depend upon your will, not ours. Uh, but our great pursuit in church is the inward, the inner man. And we are seeking inwardly to be renewed and to have a cultivation and a furtherance of every grace through the Holy Spirit, ministering to us in the preaching and in the praying and in the reading of the word and through the sacraments, all things which are outwardly despised by the outer man, but which inwardly we cherish and we find the hope of salvation growing more and more every day, even as that hope anchors us in heaven where Jesus is, as we read in Hebrews chapter 6. Where Jesus has gone before us, where he prepares a place for us. Jesus, we appeal to you now there as our great high priest. We ask you in your sympathy and your pity and your care for the church. Look after us. Strengthen our feeble and our wavering faith. Give us great faith, even triumphant faith. A faith which reaches up to the assurance, to a full assurance of faith. And a, reach, a faith which reaches forward with perseverance to finish the race which is set before us. And which Jesus has gone before us as our forerunner. Lord Jesus, you are the source of every every saving blessing, and we need you uh, to minister and to bless your church always. Uh, and, 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 and if anything, uh, we find uh, a poverty of grace only because we resist your Holy Spirit and because we're so worldly. Well, we pray that you would cast that worldliness aside and that you would thoroughly renew and renovate us in the inner man. And to give us a worship which is true and which is pure and which is bold and courageous and confident. Let us go forth, O oh Lord, with such a worship uh, in the coming days and even today. But then, O oh God, as we close our prayer, we remember those words you taught us to say. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So scripture reading, I want to look at Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is what uh, the book of Hebrews quotes and expounds. Uh, just as we saw prior uh, to this, uh, Psalm 95 became a real focal point in chapters 3 and 4. And uh, many of the Psalms uh, in chapter 1, again and again uh, in chapter 2 as well. The book of Hebrews is full with the Hebrew scriptures, no surprise there. Uh, what's so helpful to us is to see those things expounded to us, uh, both through what is said in Hebrews and also with God's help through the preaching. So let us look at this Old Testament passage and then find it again in Hebrews chapter 8. Jeremiah 31, verse 27. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, as I've watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I will not teach again, or they will not teach again, I mean, uh, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now in response to God's word, as we look forward to seeing that again in Hebrews chapter 8, let us stand and sing the doxology. As you turn with me, please, now to the Psalter Selection 34, page 632 of the hymnal. We'll be looking at Psalm 69 and Psalm 70. As always, I'll read the unbolded and together we'll read the bolded. Psalm 69, beginning in verse 18. Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. 
Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness, and I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my food, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity. Let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock that hath horns and hoofs. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live it and seek God. For the Lord heareth the poor and despiseth not his prisoners. Let the heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moveth therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of his servant shall inherit it, and they that love his name shall dwell therein. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded that seek after my soul. Let them be turned backward and put to confusion that desire my hurt. Let them be turned back for a reward of their shame that say, Aha! Let those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee, and let such as love thy salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste unto me, O God. Thou art my help and my deliverer. O Lord, make no tarrying. Let us praise the Lord now in preparation for the reading and the preaching of the word by standing and singing together hymn 415.
Amen. Please be seated. Would you turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 8, as I indicated last time, verse 6 uh, could either be taken as the conclusion of verses 1 through 5, or perhaps more fittingly, uh, that we read it last time as part of the text, uh, really the beginning of the new argument, uh, which, uh, which goes on uh, in the verses we'll read. Uh, and so read verse 6 as, as the head, or the thesis, I, I, I don't know what to call it. Uh, but the, the, the idea which he will then expound by quoting Jeremiah 31. Speaking of Christ, he says this, But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had not been fault, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, A new covenant he has made, the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Let us pray together. Great God in heaven, we thank you for the strength of your word, the power, the authority. We ask you that as Hebrews expounds and also with the help of preaching, uh, the great promises of the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ. Uh, The old covenant promising the new covenant that we as participants of that covenant might see more clearly and more fully the work of our Savior. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we continue here, and we will uh, continue for some time, many sermons to come, all the way through the middle of chapter 10. And so I would imagine that would be quite a few sermons. A sustained comparison between Jesus Christ and his priesthood and the covenant he brings, what we call the Old Covenant, and the Old Covenant, which Moses ministered, uh, and which... uh, which, uh, continued through the priesthood of the Old Covenant priests. This is a comparison uh, which began all the way back in chapter 3. After setting forth, you might say, in chapter 1, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Chapter 2, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. So in chapter 3, the comparison begins. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, and, and from there, he contrasts him with Moses, the apostle, and Aaron, the priest. And we are obviously now in the midst of the second part, Aaron, the priest. There, uh, there is in all of this the temptation for us to ask as Christians, those who are admittedly less preoccupied and, and also, let us be honest, less interested with all of this detail about the Old Covenant, what is the point of all of this? And what is the value of it? Again, considering this sustained comparison. There's an incredible amount of detail about the offerings and the priesthood and the sanctuary and the covenants in which they occurred. Almost to the point uh, that it might become wearisome 
uh, I remind you of something that I said uh, many, uh, I think I said at the beginning of this series, and which I thought of often, and which I've often feared uh, might be true of some of you, and that was the experience that Spurgeon had sitting under the preaching, the, the sustained preaching of the book of Hebrews as a young convert. It was so wearisome to him, he vowed to himself that he would never preach through a book, and he never did. Once he became a preacher, he always preached single texts. He never preached through the Bible, a single book of the Bible. Well, there's a temptation, isn't there, uh, for us to grow weary under the weight of all of this detail. There is uh, a temptation not only to ask, what is the point of it, but even uh, to, uh, to declare that perhaps it was suited better only to the Hebrew mind to satisfy their curiosities about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, but less suited to the, uh, let us say, the Gentile mind. I don't think that's right. I would say what we have here is something more like this in all of the detail. It is the setting forth of the glory of, of the cross and of Christ's priesthood. And doing so in such a way, so plainly and so fully, that the new covenant believer, the possessor of Christ, the one for whom Christ is our great high priest, would realize his privilege and that he would make full use of it. Again, Hebrews is not addressed to the old covenant believers, beloved. It is addressed to the new covenant believer. It is addressed to us to make us realize how rich and how full uh, the blessings are of the present dispensation. The book of Hebrews, then, should be viewed like this. It is a very full and complete picture of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Something which, again and again, I have argued, is the very basis of our happiness and confidence as Christians. How is it that the believer makes a bold and a confident entry into heaven? How is it that he holds fast his profession firm until the end? Not constantly wavering unbelief or falling into disobedience and sin or even, God forbid, into apostasy. It is always throughout this book by seeing ourselves and our true relation to our great high priest who is in heaven. And so the better our grasp of him, the more fully we will enjoy all of the blessings and the graces of the Christian life. Chief among them is assurance. Uh, and maybe I could add a confident and a bold worship of God. To this end, we ought to remember practically the two issues facing the church. I've already spoken of one end of the spectrum, which is assurance. The two issues facing the church, I should say, in every age, going back to the wilderness community and something that has been true ever since. On the one hand, apostasy. On the other hand, assurance. Assurance obviously being the goal. Ideally, we as Christians and as worshipers are not wavering between these two possibilities constantly. Always wondering and hoping that maybe we will get to heaven at last. Ideally, rather, we are making progress every day and every Sunday, especially uh, in our pilgrimage toward that full assurance of hope until the end described for us in chapter 6, verse 11, which I have said again and again is the goal set before the Christian in the book of Hebrews. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. To live a life of confident assurance in the presence of God, not for one day, but all the way. Ever growing in that faith and that confidence and that assurance as more and more we are, we are able to see more plainly and more fully our great high priest who is in heaven. And so the only way in which we will ever progress and possess this grace 
is to the degree that we are familiar and personally acquainted with Jesus Christ as our great high priest, not as a matter of intellectual intellectual knowledge, but as a matter, once more, of personal experience. Significantly, what, uh, having stated the goal in chapter 6, verse 11, of full assurance of hope until the end, what he condemned just prior to that was ignorance or carelessness, inattentiveness to our great high priest or indifference. And so again and again, the point has been, consider Jesus. Going back to what he says in chapter 3. Let me just read it again. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. See him as the fountain and the source of your salvation and of every saving blessing you can ever hope to possess. And as the one who we will see in chapter 12 has not only gone before us into heaven, but the only way we can ever hope to go with him there is to follow him as our savior. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider his work, his priesthood, his ministry. Is that not the constant work of the Christian always, every day, as well as the constant task of preaching, setting forth always the glories of the Savior and seeking always as we listen to the preaching and as we seek to grow in grace, seeking always to grow in our knowledge of him. Consider Jesus. That is the argument of the book of Hebrews. And that is the only way to grow in grace and to persevere in faith unto the end. We have many such statements between chapter 3 and here. I won't read them, but I will just pick up on one more, which we have just in the present chapter. Again, it's just consider Jesus. The main point, chapter 8, where we find ourselves, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Throughout the book of Hebrews up to this point and and going beyond this point, our salvation is seen to depend upon his priesthood, his priestly work on our behalf. And so, again, he is constantly set forth in the believer's view. Our salvation depending upon his priesthood, salvation seen in the fullest sense, not merely as the forgiveness of sins, though that is unquestionably the greatest blessing which he brings to us as our great high priest, but also as including, as we will see, the work of inward renovation, that is to say, the life of holiness and sanctification, uh, and, and even the full assurance of faith that gives us boldness daily before the throne of grace. All of these depend upon the priesthood of Jesus Christ. All of these are ministered to us solely by him and are found nowhere else, not in the Old Testament priesthood, not in anything that you will find in the world, only in him. And so you notice in chapter uh, 8, verse 6, which I'm saying is the head of the new passage, it is the thesis statement which he then explains and expounds by quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, three basic ideas, all of which set, uh, set forth and reveal the glory of Christ's priesthood to us. Again, with the goal that we might grow in faith and might uh, lay hold of him more fully as our great high priest. His ministry, the covenant of which he is a mediator and the promises of a better covenant. If you look at verse six, you see these three ideas clearly. Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. A better ministry 
a better covenant, better promises. It's a very easy division of the text, isn't it? And so begin with a better ministry. I think what, what, what we don't need to be convinced of as much as perhaps these early Christians, many of whom were Hebrews, is that his ministry is better. Of course it's better. We recognize that. What we need to see solely is why it's better and why nothing possibly could be better. In other words, we need to understand uh, the way it is put here is the excellence of his ministry. He has obtained a more excellent ministry. See what was so good in its ministry or, or, or in his ministry. Uh, and again, you will see that nothing could possibly be better. Jesus Christ, do you realize it's so simple, isn't it? Executes a minister, uh, a ministry as a minister of the new covenant. That is what he does as a priest on our behalf. And uh, what we might ask about this uh, thought is what kind of ministry does he execute? Understand that and you will see its excellence. And you will rest assured of its saving power. In other words, you will arrive at a full assurance of hope until the end. Just by considering the ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, let us see what we've seen thus far. For one thing, we've seen that the ministry he executes as a priest is not temporal. It is eternal. Chapter 7, uh, verse Verses 23 and 24, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. It's eternal. It's abiding. It's permanent. Just ask yourself this. Who else executes this kind of ministry? The answer is no one. One of the things that is so unsatisfying about earthly ministry, let me just tell you, is it's. Uh, is its fleeting and fading nature. And I have to imagine that the priests of the Old Testament were conscious of this as well. There is salvation found in no one else, beloved. Not in any minister at all, save Jesus Christ. Why? Because he alone is an eternal person and he alone possesses an eternal ministry. There is no one like him. There is no ministry like his. The uniqueness of his ministry is seen in its, ab- its abiding eternal nature. But if you look at the next verse, you will see his eternal ministry consists of a continual work of intercession. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is he always doing? How is he always ministering? It is by a constant work of intercession, uh, which, as we saw last time briefly, or maybe it was two times ago, uh, consists of three works, his advocacy before the Father, where he presents the objective plea of the cross. as a work of, of mercy to the church, where he pities us and comforts us, Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 4, and as a work of leading us in worship. He assumes an eternal work of intercession. He is always, in other words, ministering to the saints. And that is a ministry which is precious to the believer. The many exhortations of the epistle are all, in essence, pleas to us to go to our minister and to allow him to minister to us from heaven. Let us draw near to him full of faith so that he might help us in the time of need. Let us draw near to the throne of grace in heaven and find him there. And there we will find a faithful and merciful Savior who is ready to help us. Again, The end of chapter 2, the end of chapter 4. Precious promises to the believer 
found in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Next, we also realize that there is no priesthood, no true ministry as a priest without something to offer. Chapter 8, verse 3, chapter 5, verse 1, which is in many ways his fundamental ministry for the people. He is appointed to make offerings for sins and to atone for sins. That is the office of the priest, to act as a priest is to offer. That's what Hugh Martin says. That's what the book of Hebrews says. And this is something that we've seen and that we will see increasingly as we go into chapters 9 and 10 that the offering he makes, he makes once for all so that he really does bring in a full and a perfect salvation by atoning for the sins of the people, by his once for all offering uh, of himself on the cross. That is his ministry to us on our behalf. It is found, of course, at the cross. And let us say and let us see as we consider and explore this ministry of his, that it is an excellent one. It is an excellent ministry. Better than anything you could find in the Old Covenant. Better than anything that you can find anywhere else. Better than anything you could ever hope to find in the future. Again, the more we explore and examine that work, that priestly offering of himself on the cross, the more we will discover the excellency and the worth of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Finally, speaking of Christ as a minister on our our behalf, we must also realize that it is heavenly, not earthly. That has also been one of the key points, especially of chapters uh, of chapter seven, that he abides in heaven on our behalf. He is therefore a heavenly minister and the ministry he assumes is heavenly. I like how he puts it at the beginning of the book. More and more, I'm finding this to be a fitting summary of the whole. When he made purification of sins that is on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is a heavenly ministry. And what we notice once more about his ministry when we see it like this is its excellence and its power. What it is that sets Christ apart from everyone else, that his ministry uh, abides uh, powerfully upon the church because it comes to us from heaven. It is not a ministry like that which men perform. Here is a true ministry which saves and which saves to the uttermost. And the net effect of seeing this, the kind of ministry he executes, is that we're able to say, now as he's obtained a more excellent ministry, quite clearly, he's also the mediator of a better covenant. So that's the second point. Thoughts on the covenant. We read in chapter 7, verse 22, that Jesus is the surety of a better covenant. And there, uh, the thought really becomes uh, a prominent one. It's introduced there, and in chapters 8, 9, and 10, ideas of the covenant become uh, incredibly central to what he is describing about Christ's priesthood. In chapter 6, we see, uh, excuse me, verse 6, we see that he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. The same thing that you find in chapter 7, verse 22. And that then becomes the focus of the remainder of this chapter, the way in which the new covenant that Jeremiah promised comes into being through the ministry of Jesus Christ. The question which I have here, as I say, we will unfold and expound the doctrine of the covenant, I think, quite thoroughly in the sermons to come. My question here simply is, although we'll see in the next point what is involved in this covenant, here simply What is involved in the idea of the covenant? Something which we should say equally, if not more so for us as new covenant believers, is precious and central and foundational to our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, 
the doctrine of the covenant? How central is it to us? And in answering the question, what is involved in the idea of the covenant? I am again dependent on Hugh Martin in his book, The Atonement. I've had many questions as I go through the book of Hebrews, and I find that without fail, his book is able to answer them. And even though it is a book on the cross, uh, what you will discover if you take the time to read it is that it is perhaps the ablest exposition of the book of Hebrews that you'll find anywhere. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I once heard a minister say, conceal your study in the pulpit. I don't do a very good job of that, do I? Uh, I, I? I want to encourage you to read the books I'm reading. If you're not reading Matthew Henry and Hugh Martin by now, then I think I failed. So I'm reading Hugh Martin and I ask myself the question, what about the covenant? Why is that so central to the priesthood of Jesus Christ as set forth in the book of Hebrews? Uh, and what I discovered was that the first two chapters of the book are devoted to answering that question, where he argues, in essence, that the priesthood of Jesus Christ can never be understood. And, and especially his priestly work on the cross can never be understood or appreciated or guarded as an idea as a theological idea, that is to say, guarded from error, unless it is seen in its connection with the covenant. The relationship of the priesthood of Christ to the covenant. Let me offer three quotations from those first two chapters, uh, and then offer a few of my own comments. The first is this. He says, to place Christ and his work outside the, this covenant is to pervert the entire doctrine of the covenant. Seeing Christ again on the cross acting not inside the covenant, but outside the covenant. Or divorcing his work from ideas of the covenant. Now he says that is to pervert the entire doctrine of the covenant. I would also add it is to pervert the entire doctrine of the cross. To see his work as outside, as occurring outside of the covenant. No, place it within. Place the doctrine of the cross within the doctrine of the covenant. And then you will be safe. He is referring to the covenant as uh, the, the apostle here, as a covenant of grace or as a new covenant. The covenant which uh, Jeremiah promised to uh, the old covenant believers under the, under the law. The covenant where it is so evident in Jeremiah's prophecy that God's grace will flow to the believer in abundant measure. The grace, as we will see, of forgiveness and the grace of sanctification. The twin, uh, the twin virtues are the twin aspects of Christ's work. Justification and sanctification. But ask yourself this. If that is what the covenant is to involve, how is that covenant of grace to be conceived or how is it to be achieved apart from Christ's priestly work on behalf of the elect? And how are we to conceive of that work apart from the doctrine of the covenant? What exactly was Christ doing on the cross if not, exact, if not executing the covenant? And how was the covenant to come into being if not through the blood of Jesus Christ? As we'll see in the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood, he says. As we are to remember every time we come to the table. The truth is that the covenant of grace beloved, has no meaning apart from Jesus Christ and his priestly work. It is impossible to conceive of a covenant of grace apart from him. Nor does that work, his priestly work on our behalf, have any meaning unless it is conceived as occurring within the covenant of grace, as part of it and performed in execution of that covenant. 
And so the two ideas are inseparable. You cannot conceive of Christ's work as occurring outside of the covenant, nor can you conceive of the covenant as coming to pass apart from his priestly work. Always view them together. Christ's work as a priest is that which brings the new covenant into fulfillment. That's the argument here, quite plainly, in Hebrews chapter 8. And the doctrine of the covenant is what gives Christ's priesthood real value to us. Since it comes to us as part of the covenant of grace and secures for us or purchases for us all of its blessings. All of the blessings of the new covenant flow to us through him in his priesthood. And if we were to try to place his priesthood outside of that covenant, not only would we fail to see it in its true glory. As the achievement, as the achievement of justification and sanctification for the believer. But we would also, as I said earlier, open ourselves to countless errors, uh, which we find in the church today about the cross. Place it within the covenant. Second, where, uh, we find, uh, Hugh Martin describing a downgrade in preaching. This is something I quoted earlier, uh, in the series, but I, but here, uh, under a slightly different aspect. A, doc, a downgrade in preaching which he discerned largely as a result in the downgrade uh, of the place of the covenants in the preaching. And to some extent, I wonder if I'm guilty of the same error. He says this, the preaching of the disruption ministers was largely leavened or rather was pervadingly characterized by the large place assigned in it to the covenants. Those great schemes of divine dispensation with mankind. And the consequence was... You'll notice a familiar point. I made this exact point earlier. The consequence of preaching that was full of the covenants was that the intelligent hearers, he said, acquired large views of the divine truth and could accordingly realize themselves to be conscious of growing in knowledge of acquiring real power to make attainments and advancements in spiritual things. The larger place assigned to the covenants, the larger view of the truth. The larger view of the truth, the larger view of Christ and the larger view of Christ. And the more we grow in that knowledge, the greater our progress will be in the Christian life. See the centrality then of the covenant in the place of preaching and in our understanding of the gospel. See it as a pathway to our own growth in knowledge and in grace. Understand that if we wish to grow into a full assurance of faith firm until the end, Our growth in this grace will occur in correspondence to our growth in our knowledge of the covenant, especially the covenant of grace, of which Jesus Christ is the mediator and surety. Think of what it is exactly, speaking of the covenants, uh, that the doctrine of the covenant seeks to answer. Questions like this. How does God propose to deal with man as a sinner? What are his promises? What are his stipulations? What are his judgments and his mercies? How does a sinner come to possess his mercy and grace and to stand secure in such things? These are the kinds of questions which the doctrine of the covenant seeks to answer and which it answers persuasively and decisively. And these are real and practical questions facing Christians in every age. How is it that I as a sinner to be reconciled to God? How am I to stand secure in that uh, promise and that standing? But again, these are the questions which the doctrine of the covenant answers. We find in the priesthood of Jesus Christ 
is a mediator and is a surety of a better covenant. A definite sense that God has answered all of these questions. That God is in fact reconciled to us as sinners. And that he wishes to be reconciled to us. And that that reconciliation stands forever in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. This is a covenant he will never annul or set aside. And the guarantee of that once again is that Jesus Christ stands forever in heaven on our behalf. And that is a place he will never leave. And an office he will never lose. And the more we are able to grow in this knowledge, not only of Jesus Christ, but of the covenant which he executes, the more stable and the more fruitful our religion and our faith. And the less apt we will be to waver in unbelief and even veer in the direction of apostasy, but rather we will find that we are making solid and real progress in our profession, which is in fact the great aim of this book and of the Christian life, that we would hold fast our profession and that we would make progress in it. Remember what was said in chapter 3, verse 1. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Third, Hugh Martin says this about the doctrine of the covenant. And this is something that will take the next several sermons to unfold as we dive into chapter 9. But let me just introduce the thought here. We find it, he says, embracing all Christ's works. All Christ's works, singular. It expounds Christ's complete office. It is the doctrine of the covenant which explains the fullness and the perfection of the work of Jesus Christ, especially on the cross, but also the priestly work of intercession in heaven forevermore. In other words, what Hugh Martin is saying and what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is that there is no way to understand what Christ was doing on the cross or now in heaven apart from the doctrine of the covenant. We are left, if we seek to understand, for instance, the work of the cross apart from the doctrine of the covenant, Think here of the downgrade in preaching, which Hugh Martin spoke of earlier. We are left only with vague and sentimental notions about the cross. And that is that not what we find today? So often the cross is presented in a vague and a sentimental way, rather than as something which is real and solid, rooted and grounded in the covenant. Understand why it is the doctrine of the covenant is so central to our preaching of the cross. With that doctrine, all the parts of his work and his office come into clear uh, focus and plain view for the believer to easily believe and lay hold of his great high priest. We find in the doctrine of the covenant a full and complete picture of his priesthood and his salvation. And what we discover, once again, is the excellence and the worth and the glory of that work. Since it is the covenant that tells us what his cross achieves for us, what it is he purchases, and what graces it is through that priestly work that then flow to the believer through his priestly ministry. And so if you look at the assertion made here that he is the mediator of a better covenant, you see the precise relation of his ministry and his office to the covenant. He is the mediator. He is the surety. He ministers the graces and the blessings of that covenant. Or to put it a little bit differently, all of the blessings promised in that covenant by Jeremiah are found solely in him and in his ministry. So if you understand the covenant, you will understand his ministry to us, what it consists of, its stability and so forth. But that brings us to the final thought, and that is uh, the blessings and the promises which are found in the new covenant. 
and which Jesus Christ in his priesthood secures and ministers to the church in all of their fullness. We find in verse 8, uh, as a quotation from Jeremiah, that the promises come into effect by the establishment of a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. And the one who brings that covenant into being is Christ through his priestly service. And so again, ultimately, what we find is that these three ideas are intimately connected, as is made clear in verse 6. The ministry, the, media, uh, the mediation uh, of that covenant, and then the covenant itself, uh, the better promises. But what are those promises? It depends on how you look at the passage, whether you had Jeremiah 31 open or Hebrews chapter 8 open. You could say there were either two or three. There is the promise of inward renewal. If we were to say three, the promise of pardon and the promise of knowledge. Uh, but I prefer Calvin's scheme uh, where he says there's really two. I think I've made that clear this far. The blessing of justification, the blessing of sanctification. Uh, seeing the, the, the knowledge as a third blessing is involved in uh, in the work of sanctification. That is clear when he says, I will put my law into their minds and they will know me. They'll know me because they're inwardly renewed. And so there are really two blessings that we find here found in Jesus Christ. Again, justification and sanctification or pardon and inward renewal. That's how Calvin puts it. Seeing Christ's ministry then as the fulfillment of what Jeremiah promised. Just look at both of these in turn. The promise of inward renewal. Verse 10. I will put my law into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Uh, and so on and so forth. Inward renewal. or Sanctification. What he's saying here is fundamental to the contrast between the old and the new. The old covenant is ministered by Moses and the Old Testament priests. Uh, and the ministry of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. The same exact contrast, in fact, that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The difference between the outward letter which kills and the inward spirit which gives life. And so if you think of what is being described here, the dilemma of the situation of uh, those who lived under the law. What good did the law do Israel when it was written on stones and they had no power to keep it? That was the fundamental flaw or defect in the old covenant. So long as the law remained outside of them as something that was written and even as something that was preached and they heard, they would always break it since inwardly man is always opposed to God's law. And that is the story in the history of Israel that we find throughout the history recorded in the many books of the Old Testament. Israel was always guilty of breaking God's law. The law was always something that was external to them. And as a whole, it was something that never penetrated inwardly. And so you see that while God faulted Israel for not keeping the covenant, verse 8, finding fault with them, he says, why? They broke the covenant. The fault must equally be assigned to the covenant itself, which the text is also clear about. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second The old covenant, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 3, was not a ministry of life. It was a ministry of death and condemnation. But God is not so unjust as to heighten the dilemma as he did in the days of the old covenant, giving man a greater and a greater sense of his own sinfulness and his own inability to resolve that dilemma on his own. He is not so unjust as to heighten this 
but offer no solution. And what we find in the Old Covenant, as, as uh, the writer to the Hebrews reminds us here, is that even in the old days, he, la- he laid the foundation for something better by promising a new arrangement, a new covenant, where God would not only declare his law written on tablets of stone, but he would renovate the heart, the sinful heart, and he would fashion it after the law. Inward renovation. With this, with this would also come the true knowledge of God, since inwardly the mind and the heart were being fashioned in true righteousness and knowledge. Here are blessings which Jeremiah in the Old Covenant tells us are only found in the New Covenant. And which Christ, as its surety and mediator, ministers to believers. We find in these promises a life that is full of God, and even a life that is uh, even the life of God residing in the believer. It is a life of sanctification and holiness. It is a life of growth in grace and and in, in the knowledge of the Lord. It is a life not of animosity to God, but of renewal and obedience. It is a life not of covenant breaking, but of covenant keeping and faithfulness founded once more, not upon ourselves, but upon the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. And which is possible only because he ministers and mediates this grace to us. The reason uh, that what Jeremiah said would be true is true now in the new covenant is because of Jesus Christ's priestly ministry to us. He is the minister and a mediator of this covenant. And as he ministers his life to us from heaven, so we are able to grow in this grace. Again, we see how clearly the doctrine of the covenant and of his priesthood belong together. But we also have the promise of pardon. And this will uh, once more become the focal point of chapters 9 and 10. But we begin to consider it here as one of the, uh, the two cardinal blessings that flow to the believer in the new covenant. And this is, I would say, and I think we would agree, the cardinal blessing of the new covenant. The blessing of the forgiveness of sins, which Christ, again, as its surety and, uh, and surety and mediator, ministers to believers. Look at how emphatic the language is here. He not only says that I will forgive their sins, but he says I will remember them no more. He will treat us as though we have no sin. Now that is a shocking statement. If you just think of your own forgiveness, is it actually true that when you forgive someone that you forget their sin? The reality is, in fact, the opposite. We may forgive, but we rarely forget But if you look at what God says here in saying, I will forget their sins, he is saying, I will treat them as though they have no sin. Here is a mercy which blots out transgression through remission. And where there is remission, there is no sin. And where there is no sin, there is no remembrance of sin. And where there is no remembrance, there is no offense. And where there is no offense, there is harmony and peace between God and man. And yet surely we must realize Uh, Just as soon as we see God promising this enormous blessing to us in the new covenant, that this is an enormous task. It is almost unbelievable that God should promise such a thing to man considered as a sinner and God considered as he is, as one who is purely holy and just. How is it that he, uh, as one who is all these things, could accept a sinner, an unclean sinner into his presence? And what is more to treat and regard him as one? Who is clean 
to bring him into a state of intimacy and knowledge with himself. Declaring that I am his God and he is mine. But this is precisely, of course, where the idea of the priesthood comes in. This is why we need to understand everything that the book of Hebrews and indeed the whole of the Bible has to say about how it is remission or forgiveness comes to be. And why that remission, when it occurs, is in fact final and total. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22. Without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. That is, without a priestly offering, without sacrifice, there can be no atonement. Yes, but chapter 10, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. That's why Jesus doesn't have to offer over and over and over again. Because through his offering, he really did bring in forgiveness. And now that he's brought in forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. We ought to be satisfied with that kind of logic, beloved. Seeing how perfectly and how fully Jesus Christ brings in A full atonement of sin. And so that is exactly how we should conceive of our own forgiveness. And of the possibility and the fact of forgiveness. As something that comes to pass only and solely by the priestly offering of Jesus Christ. Which is to say through the cross. As a blessing which is secured on the cross and nowhere else. And seeing our forgiveness coming by this offering. Which we are told is once for all never to be repeated. And which secures a a final and a definite remission of sins. What we notice is the finality of it all. Considering forgiveness as secured through the priesthood of Jesus Christ. What is promised to us, in other words, is not forgiveness for a day. As maybe the believers under the old covenant might have had a sense of. But it is the promise of pardon forever. And it is on this basis that we enjoy a full and a perfect harmony with God. Which brings out more fully the sense of what he says in verses 10 through 12. Listen again for the kind of life he's describing. For this is the covenant that I will, ma- I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Do you realize what he is describing? It is a picture of harmony and love between God and the believer. God disposed to accept the believer and the believer walking in harmony with his God. Not only as one who is reconciled, but one, uh, but one who is full of the life of God. One who is growing in grace and one who is assured Of his status before God. That is what Christ achieves for the believer. As the mediator and surety of this covenant. But we might ask this question very briefly. As I'm nearing an end here. Of whether the Old Testament saints knew anything of these blessings. Justification, sanctification. Since as John Calvin says. Jeremiah seems to rob them of these blessings. And assigns them solely uh, to new covenant believers. Yet we also know as Calvin acknowledges. That many of those saints like Abraham and David. And even Jeremiah. Had true faith and walked in obedience to the, to the Lord. They were growing in grace just like you and me. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. We also know that they not only enjoyed the blessing of pardon. But the assurance of it. As expressed for instance in many of the penitential psalms. Uh, Chief among them, Psalm 32. There's no question about this. 
Psalm 32 even occurs as an instance of justifying faith in the Old Covenant uh, in Romans chapter 4, where Paul argues that David, like we, was justified by faith. He enjoyed a sense of pardon and an assurance of pardon. The question which we have then is, how did they ever come to partake of this blessing? And how do we account for this apparent discrepancy? Simply by realizing that the only way anyone ever came to enjoy these things was by participating and partaking of the old of the new and not of the old. In other words, the way that David or Abraham came to enjoy a sense of assurance of the forgiveness of sins or of growing in grace was not through the old covenant and its priesthood. But solely by looking to looking ahead, as promised in the old covenant, to the blessings which were to come in the new covenant and secured through the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so the, the believer in the old covenant was saved in, saved in just the same way as we. By saving faith in Jesus Christ. Calvin in answering the question then says there's no reason why God should not have extended the grace of the new covenant to the fathers. This is the true solution of the question. Again, they found forgiveness and sanctification like we in Jesus Christ and in his covenant. And for them, as we, he was the mediator of a new and a better covenant, and thus he was their savior, too. And so the sum of the matter is this. Again, as it's stated in verse six, he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which is enacted on better promises. See how much truth there is in the statement, beloved, just by considering the covenant which he ministers and mediates and guarantees to us. And realize that the only way we can ever come into the blessings of this covenant and rest assured that they are ours is by coming into a possession of him, by realizing not only that he is a great high priest, but by being able to say that he is our great high priest. But again, it is precisely the doctrine of the covenant itself that makes this relation between he and us possible and certain. For the, the idea of the covenant not only implies the execution of the divine plan, but it also implies something else, namely the relationship between Christ and the people. A covenant oneness, or to use the language of the covenants, a federal theology that we are one with him. There is an unbreakable bond between Christ and the believer. He is our great high priest. And so long as he stands in heaven as our as our priest, which is to say forever, nothing can ever rob us of the blessings of the new covenant. Amen. And let us come uh, now to the table. Well, I have to say, I try to wrap it up by the turn of the hour, but sometimes I don't succeed. So long as I'm going to be preaching these sermons twice, they're always going to be longer the second time. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, so it is. Uh, I, I would like to read again the words of institution. I think last time we concluded uh, the we concluded our survey of the Lord's Supper, teachings on the Lord's Supper. Maybe some of you could tell me if there's anything beyond 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, and, and since we're doing this every week, I don't feel the need to give a full exposition of the Lord's Supper every time. We could content ourselves from time to time just with the words of institution. And let us do that 
uh, do that here. Uh, again, from 1 Corinthians 11, I, re- I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And in another place, I can't remember which, uh, he even connects the, the, the gift of forgiveness with his blood. The forgiveness is found in his blood. But did you see, he said, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so we are reminded of, of the two doctrines coming together and seen in their relationship. That Christ in his priesthood brings the blessings of the new covenant to us. He secures them and then he ministers them. Well, there's the sermon. And I hope that you can see an example of it here at the table. The blessing of forgiveness found in the new covenant and sealed in his blood is now signified in the in the cup and the bread. And those are uh, means by which he ministers those blessings to us from heaven because he's appointed this. I'm not the one who's ministering these things to you. It's him. I just stand on his behalf uh, and speak on his behalf. But it's his ministry that we are seeking and his blessing. I can't pardon you of a single sin. But he can pardon you of every single one. And that is a blessing that we want to not only enjoy, but to be assured of like David. I quoted Psalm 32, but let me just read it just so that we're clear what I'm referring to. See a man not only who's forgiven, but who's assured that he's forgiven. Uh, and, And look for that blessing here at the table. He said, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There it is. And it is found in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. I I am required as a minister to offer a warning as well. This is a blessing we all ought to seek. But if it is a blessing we know nothing about. And if we are prone in our hearts to hate Christ and to despise his ordinances, then it is a very dangerous thing to deal with the Lord's Supper. Now, that's what he says. That's not what I say. Uh, I know in our hearts <laughs> we are prone to disbelieve that, that any harm could come upon us by eating a little piece of bread and drinking a little cup of wine. Uh, but just as surely as he is alive today, so it is dangerous to do so. Are we stronger than he, Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, speaking of the Lord's Supper. Let us not trifle with the things of the Lord. Let us see something in this, which I keep referring to as sacred. Uh, let us regard this as to us the body and blood of Christ offered to us afresh, uh, after a spiritual fashion, of course. Uh, and then let me pray and we'll come to the table. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for uh, these two chief blessings of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins and the, uh, and the inward renewal of sanctification. We pray that we would not seek to come into these blessings by our own merits, but that we would find them solely and fully in Christ. And might you continue to minister these blessings to us from heaven through these appointed means, Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name. Give this bread to you.
Our Lord Jesus said, take eat, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup, and having given thanks as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples. As I ministering in his name, give this cup to you. And as a reminder, the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice. Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Now let us close out our worship by singing uh, what I, I feel to be one of the strongest covenantal hymns, hymn 99. Let us stand together and sing.
unified spirits in heaven. Just as a reminder, in about five minutes we'll begin the communicants class. We receive now the blessing of the Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.